0: I, uh, I was talking to Kyle a few weeks back uh, in staff meeting. Ben had asked me to preach this morning, and uh, we, I, Kyle and I were talking about how it, I feel like it's almost every year uh, where on Palm Sunday I get to share with you, and um, I enjoy that because like Pastor said, it's kind of the kickoff to... Uh, what is in in many ways kind of the the biggest week of the year here for us um, and and so i'm I'm really honored to get to share again uh, it, it's a significant time of year, and the events of Palm Sunday again, kind of not only drive jesus' story into what we're going to be talking about tonight um, and on Friday and next Sunday, but also kind of push us as Christians today into a mindset of who is Jesus um, and and why are these days significant to us. This morning we're going to be doing a bit of hopping around in our Bibles. Um, I'll do my best to give you time to make those those page flips, but uh, for our purposes this morning we're going to be starting in, in Matthew chapter 21. Uh, and so, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Matthew 21, and uh, one of the things that has come up is—is is I was looking at this and I said, "Man, I feel like I've—I feel like I've been here before." Um, and one of the things that happens, especially around holidays in the church, is we have these these texts in Scripture that are kind of the things we keep coming back to, and as a result, we get to keep reflecting on these similar areas every single year, uh, and even though we have a, a wide variety of Scripture that we can go to in our daily lives and are hopefully reading through, um, there, there is power in these moments throughout the year where we return to these kind of uh, routine Scriptures as, as things, as markers throughout our year. Um, and I think one of the things we're going to find as, as we look tonight at Passover And and its significance with Jesus is that for the Jewish people, they had those as well. Um, They had these scriptures, and they had these things, and these observances that they returned to as an act of remembrance. Um, And so in Matthew, uh, to give you some context, Jesus and his followers are returning from Galilee in the north, and they are heading south towards Jerusalem, uh, and they are going there to celebrate Passover, Uh, And so there is going to be some very tangible connection tonight. Um, Passover for for the the calendar is this week. In 2023, it's this week. So things are all kind of lining up for us here. Um, But as Jesus and his his followers are traveling south to Jerusalem for Passover, uh, it, it was customary for the whole Jewish world to come together in this. They would gather in Jerusalem for this remembrance and this holiday to observe Passover together. And as they do so, as Jesus goes, He does a couple things. One of the things that we see Jesus doing is He's healing people. Even on His travels, Jesus is caring for the people around Him. But the other thing that we are told is He tells His followers that He is going to die. And He says when when." We get to Jerusalem, there's going to be the hands of men there waiting for me. They're going to deliver me over to death. And as you're, if you're on a traveling party and you hear that, and you hear, well, the end of this road, like there's something bad might happen with Jesus. I imagine there's some tension there. The good news is, is Jesus also told them that he was going to rise again. Now, I think a lot of them had forgotten that. Um, by the point uh, of, of Friday in, in the Passion story. But as they go, there were others who were traveling along with them. Well, what would happen is they would begin with these small little traveling parties, and, and because there's not like, lighting and headlights and all that stuff, they would form up these big traveling parties and they would move together as they move towards Jerusalem for safety and security, as well as just companionship. And so as they're, they're traveling towards Jerusalem, there, there's this big group, and these are some of the people that Jesus is healing along the way. Um, Matthew records the healing of some blind men in these travels. And the Bible describes this scene as they come to the end of that journey to Jerusalem. The Bible describes this scene in Matthew 21, starting in verse 1. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, And then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the events that we remember as Palm Sunday today, but the events that happened so long ago where Jesus arrives into Jerusalem. And I pray that as we we look at these scriptures, as we look at um, what maybe some of these things would have meant to the people in that time, that it would help us answer a question for ourselves as who Jesus is to us. We love you and thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. As I was saying, um, a lot of times we come to these scriptures that are uh, repeats throughout the year. And one of the things that that happened for me as I started doing a little study of this is is I kind of had a feeling of, I feel like I'm going to be repeating myself. And I actually almost jumped. I like Matthew. It's where I'm at with the Sermon on the Mount. um, And so I tend towards Matthew. uh, And I almost jumped to a different book uh, for the triumphal entry. But I, I was struck by something and that it has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk to you about today. Um, but Hebrews describes God's word as living and active. Um, and so one of the things that I did as I, as I read through this, I went, I feel like it's, something is popping at me differently than I feel it normally does. And, and I don't say differently as if, well, I'm the first one to ever notice this, because I'm not. Um, countless before me have noticed these things. Um, But I want to share with you this morning some of the things that I I was kind of led towards as standing out as maybe different or or things that maybe the people in Jesus' day would have been thinking in their brains when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on this donkey. It's my prayer and prayer for you and myself, that we never lose that kind of pop when we read the scriptures, um, especially the ones that are kind of our greatest hits. But the thing that stood out is this: is that ultimately, Palm Sunday is the beginning of a question that plays out into the rest of, of this holy week. And that is the question, Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus guy? The people themselves ask it in this story. And, and it's a question that, especially when we come to Friday and Sunday, we've got to answer that for ourselves. Who is this Jesus? And, and as we begin to formulate our response to that question, it will drive us into, well, what do we do with this Jesus then? number of times Jesus asked his followers in his teaching, who do you say that I am? And many people around Jesus gave a variety of answers. And today we're going to see kind of their response as well as some of the things Jesus did that that key us into who is Jesus and who is Jesus trying to communicate himself as here. Because who he is has implications on how we will respond. As Jesus prepares his descent from the Mount of Olives, Uh, he sends two disciples into Jerusalem to go find this colt, this young donkey, uh, for him to ride into town on. And here's the deal. Jesus and his followers, they just took a journey. They are fresh into town off this journey from Galilee down into Jerusalem. They took a lot of that journey on foot and likely had some pack animals. They have access to animals. And it's not that Jesus' feet are too tired that He can't make this short little journey down the hill into Jerusalem. He's just walked a plenty of... He, he's done that trip plenty of times. They had animals. They just made a long journey. And so we might think, like, why can't Jesus just walk into Jerusalem? He's done it before. Why can't He do it again? And, and Matthew wants us to focus in on the weirdness of Jesus asking for this. It's, it's strange. I even think his disciples, um, it probably struck them as, what are you talking about? Matthew tells us why, though. Uh, and, and he adds a layer of, of kind of cultural significance to this moment. Uh, and he writes this separate. So, Matthew is giving his gospel, he's penning his gospel, and and in doing so, he's telling this story of Jesus entering Jerusalem, but then he breaks that narrative, and he kind of turns to the reader, and he says, okay, I'm going to key you in on something here. And he says in verse 4, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Matthew tells us that Jesus did this. He, he sends out the disciples, gets this donkey, rides into town on it, specifically to fulfill prophecy. And it's a prophecy that was given 500 years earlier. It's a long time. And we're going to look briefly at this prophecy. If you turn to Zechariah 9 9, we're going to jump over there for a little bit. Um, and This prophecy in general, uh, the portion that Matthew quotes, is a portion that can be summed up as this. Israel is going to be awaiting a king who is going to come to his people riding on the back of a colt or a young donkey. So keep your eyes open for this person. And for Matthew's purposes, this got the meaning across. It connected what Jesus is doing to what the Scriptures had said would happen. Matthew gets his connection across. But we do well to observe the context of this prophecy. Because the reality is, is for the Jewish people, especially the people who are coming to Passover and are spending time hearing the Scriptures in their day, when they hear or when they read Matthew say this portion of scripture, they likely have a lot of what Zechariah has also said in their brains, because these prophetic scriptures are things that they look forward to. They are waiting for these, and so when Zechariah or when Matthew quotes Zechariah, they probably had a lot more in the back of their brains as to what was also being said. Zechariah nine. Starting in verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, this is the portion Matthew quotes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Matthew quotes Zechariah 9.9 in his gospel. But what's interesting is he leaves out a line. And I would argue it's a pretty significant line. He leaves out the line that says righteous and having salvation is he. Now Matthew's not making an argument that Jesus is not those things. But remember when when they read that they would have in their brains well, what's this king like? And they would have remembered Zechariah's prophecy or the hope is that they would. The king who enters on this young donkey is righteous. He brings salvation. That's good enough news. (laughs) The other thing I want to note here is the types of things that Zechariah says this king will do. It talks about cutting off chariots and putting away the war horses and breaking the battle bows. He brings peace to the nations. Not, Not just Israel. It says brings peace to the nations. It says his reign will spread from sea to sea, or in other words, as far as you can tell, from far and wide. And so even just the two verses that this is pulled out of, it, it gives us a little more feeling that yes, the king is your king is coming, humble, riding on a donkey. But that king is coming for a very, very big purpose. He is righteous, he brings salvation. And he brings peace. The even greater context of Zechariah uh, tells us that So Zechariah has just pronounced judgment on Israel's enemies. And so this coming king who is righteous and brings salvation is also tied to God's judgment on Israel's enemies in Zechariah. Of this, Zechariah says uh, in nine sixteen, On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of His people, for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on His land. For how great is His goodness and how great His beauty! Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. And then jumping down to chapter 10, verse 12, And I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in His name, declares the Lord. the the hopes of this king in Zechariah's time in their brain, whoever he may be, are tied to God's plan to save His people and restore them. And so if we jump back over to Matthew 21, Matthew is making that connection. He's saying, this Jesus who has just asked for this donkey, the reason he's doing that is because Jesus knows he is about to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy. He's about to ride into town as the righteous king who brings salvation, who will ultimately bring peace, and will restore God's people. It's important to note, Jesus knew what Zechariah said. He he wasn't surprised. It's not like he stumbled into this and got lucky. He did it on purpose. I think in doing so, what's interesting is within a handful of chapters of Matthew, Jesus kind of gives his prophecy himself. He says, yeah, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. And I think in doing this, Jesus kicks off the events that will make that prophecy true as well. He knows what's going to happen. And so the people gathered there on that day, and, and we ourselves today have this moment where we respond to that. Jesus is claiming to be this king. He's claiming to be righteous. He's claiming to bring salvation. How do we respond to that? I want to note, before we move on, um, I like the comment about his disciples here. Uh, Jesus tells them, go find this donkey. And Matthew just says, yeah, and they went and did it, just as Jesus said. And I think, you know, in their brains, they had this, what are we doing? But they have learned something about Jesus and how he acts and how he does things. They've learned to do it. They've learned to trust him and say, you know what? Okay, <laughs> we'll go find this donkey for you. Um, it's one, there's a lesson of obedience there. It's one that, that Ben has discussed a lot in the book of Acts as the early church responds to the Spirit. They didn't always know what the outcome was going to be. These guys, I don't know if they knew the significance of this moment at this. But they went and did it. They responded in faith and said, okay, I'm like, we'll go find it. You don't have to fully comprehend every little detail, all the little implications of how it will play out in order to obey. You don't have to. But Jesus rides into town and there's a huge crowd. It's Passover. It's one of the biggest celebrations in the Jewish world. And as he descends into the city, Matthew tells us in 21 verse 8, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes into the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest! It says most of the crowd, I you would you really want Matthew to say everybody got it. <laughs> um, but he says, most of the crowd is able to grasp at least a surface, surface-level significance of this moment. They see Jesus coming down the hill, and this party kind of fall, and they're like, There's something happening here. This is big. And, and those who maybe were Understanding or remembered Zechariah's prophecy, they begin to take off their cloaks and they lay them down. And I imagine that it's a little bit of groupthink. As people see others doing it, they're like, uh, "Oh, yeah, let, let's do this." What are we doing? Those who might not have a cloak or have already laid theirs down, they begin cutting off palm branches. And this this idea of cloaks and, and palm branches. They're two different but related acts of submission. It's an act of loyalty, or at least it was supposed to be. What's really interesting is in Scripture, we see very, very few examples of God's people taking off their cloaks and laying them down for a king. One of the few times that it's recorded is in 2 Kings chapter 9 when the people heralded Jehu. 2 Kings 9.13 says, Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpets and proclaimed, Jehu is king. It's one of the few mentions we get of this, this custom. Jehu was a king who almost got it. He almost got it right. He did a lot to deliver God's people, but he failed to go all the way and and totally rid the land of the idolatry in his time. He left some behind. Leaving that inappropriate worship, failure to restore that, meant that he didn't quite get it he missed the mark as king. He did a lot of good, but his failure to go all the way and cleanse that worship meant he did not restore God's people. And when the people begin laying down their cloaks, maybe there are some who evoke this idea that perhaps this king, we're going to herald him in. Jehu did a good job. He didn't get it all right. But maybe as we lay these down, maybe this king will be the one who finally restores us. Others begin to cut branches off nearby palm trees. <clears throat> this is it's almost on the nose, but this is where we get the name for Palm Sunday. Palm branches had a lot of significance for the people of Israel. They were symbols of goodness and prosperity and victory. Uh, In in Israel at the time, there was a saying that when when everything is good in the land and there is prosperity, every man sits under his own palm branch because life is good. Palms are this symbol of, of things going well. They're also a tool. They would carve them into their buildings. Solomon carved palm trees on in the inner and outer rooms of the temple. You, you can go read that, it's First Kings 6. He, he carves those into the temple. They're, they're this kind of thing that keeps popping up in their culture, palm branches. Palm branches were also used in many of their celebrations. They were waved as an act of expressing joy and victory and honestly, kind of as a noisemaker. Like, we have those awful kazoo things that they hand out to little kids on New Year's nowadays. Um, and then the parents of those little kids get to hear them for weeks after, but Leviticus 23.40 says, And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. This is a description of a part of the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was a celebration that the Jewish people had to remember the days that God had delivered them from Egypt when they had to live in these tents made of booths, little booths. And they're told to hold this observance, the Feast of Booths, to remember those days. And palm branches, they're told to cut them, and then they're told, rejoice before the Lord. And I imagine they have these like branches and these poles and stuff, and they're like, well, I made the tent, but I've got a few left over. They would wave them. And what's interesting is in that same chapter of Leviticus, it gives customs for the Passover. And and I have a feeling we're going to hear about that tonight. But in those descriptions, there's nothing about waving palm branches. And what scholars kind of think has happened is they they had this thing where it's like it's a noisemaker. It's a way to show victory. They wave it about. Provide shade in a world that is very hot and sunny. And it's become this thing where anytime there's a gathering and we're trying to celebrate something, you get some palm branches. They're a good tool to be used. This way of celebrating permeated their culture, it became this, this thing to them. The cloaks and the palms point us in, in the same direction but from different angles. They point us to Jesus Christ, as, as this righteous king who is tied to the past and God's ability to deliver God's people and the hopes that one day God will restore His people again. And it is for this reason that those gathered there they, they start shouting, "Hosanna! Save us!" Save us, son of David. That's a kingly term, son of David. They, a lot of these people, if you could tie your lineage to David, it's a good thing when you're, if you're claiming to be king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's an interesting phrase, the name of the Lord. Um, and it's one of the first indications that those gathered there, they haven't all the way connected it. They haven't, gone, they haven't made the full connection in who Jesus is. Because when the king comes to town, if a king comes to town, the king doesn't come in the name of the king. He, he comes to town. Somebody else comes in the name of the king. They shout, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yes, but Jesus, you, you can't get much closer to the name of the Lord than Jesus. They, they've got it, but they, don't, they haven't gone all the way to connect that Jesus is the Lord. They haven't made that, that jump yet in their thinking. They've missed Jesus' full significance as Messiah. Messiah the full implications of what He is coming to do. To them, Jesus comes in the name of the Lord and they're not wrong. Um, He does do that, but He does much more. They believe He is sent from God. Thus they say, save us in the highest. God, You've sent us This person. That's true. But I don't know if many of them have connected that this is God himself on the back of one of the most humble creatures you could find at the time. As Jesus enters fully into the city, remember there's a big crowd. I I imagine it's chaos. Matthew closes out this scene by telling us this detail. In verse 10, he says, And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? Who, who is this Jesus? Who is this guy on the back of this donkey? The city is a buzz. Those who are savvy, again, probably look on and understand, like, something important is happening here. This guy kind of seems like he's coming in as king right now. Others are probably the ones that are coming at the tail end. They're like, I've got to get in-, in on this. What is happening? Who is this Jesus? That's the question. Who is this Jesus? And the people's actions and their cries have already given us part of their answer. Jesus is the king who's coming to set them free in some way. And so He is. But others, in verse 11 it says, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Others were saying that of Jesus. And and so He is. That's true. But when we see the scene of what Jesus did when He arrived to Jerusalem, we really get a feel for His purpose. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you've prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Jesus makes this journey Into Jerusalem during Passover. It's a very public thing. Quite literally, most eyes are on Jesus as he enters the town, enters the city. And he doesn't go to the Roman cohorts to pronounce rebellion, he doesn't go to the guards and officials to start a political uprising. He goes to the temple. the center of worship and religious life. And he drives out those who have formed and created a mockery there. He restores worship. He welcomes the blind and the lame and the kids into The temple, the people who were supposed to be able to get in there to worship all along and couldn't, he welcomes them in. There's no cost of entry anymore. There's a couple groups of people in the scriptures who take on this role of of establishing and, and correcting worship. One of those groups is the priests. And another person is God himself does that. And so he is. And what's weird is as soon as he arrives in Jerusalem, Matthew's like, and and he left. Came for one solidary purpose. For this scene at the temple. He leaves and lodges at Bethany and we have this moment that kicks off the rest of Passion Week because As Matthew has said, they're indignant. They're not happy with him now. And I imagine many of the people who are just shouting, Hosanna! They're waiting for the the big, what do we do next? Do we begin to fight? Forgetting Zechariah's prophecy. The war horse is put away. The battle bow is broken. That's not the type of salvation Jesus is coming. He will do that. But he has to save them in a different way first. Jesus is heralded as the king who will save them. He's called the prophet who points them to God. And he performs the duty of priest. And when those crowds cried out Hosanna, I think they had a very specific idea of what salvation looked like. They wanted salvation from Rome. Rome was this thorn to them. It taxed them. It told them what to do. Changed how they had to worship sometimes. They wanted to be done with that. And I can't blame them. But Jesus' salvation first has to address the Rome in their hearts. It has to address the sin in our lives, in our hearts, first. I'll note again, in Zechariah 10, God is going to change them. That's the end of that presentation from Zechariah. And Jesus is coming to kick off the events by which God will go about changing people. Jesus came to save them from their sin and he comes to save us from our sin. That's a task that only the prophet, priest, king can perform and that's a task only the Lord can achieve. And so we we ask again "Who, who is this Jesus? Who is he? In Matthew in Zechariah in the connections that they're making, is arguing that that Jesus is righteous. He is our king. He is our prophet. He is our priest. Because Jesus is the God who saves us. And in five short days from this moment in Jesus' life, he's going to die to do that. And he did all of these events knowing full well that that's where it ends. Jesus is the God who saves us, or as Zechariah put it, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. It is our job to respond to the truth of who Jesus is. And so, this week on Palm Sunday, and and next week on Resurrection Sunday, there, there are two kind of more heavily attended church days. And I want to to put something out to you this morning. And and that is, we we have a duty to respond to Jesus. And if if this morning is is the first time where you've, you've heard about this Jesus, and you're thinking, I need saved. I have sin. I have something that keeps me from doing what is right. That keeps me from pleasing God. I need Jesus. One response to this Jesus is to put our faith in him for salvation. When we recognize we have sin and repent and turn from that sin and turn to the king, scripture tells us we will be saved. Others come to the Jesus of Palm Sunday and they think to themselves, thank God I have been saved. And it's another chance throughout the year where we stop and we get to remember truly the horrors that Jesus will go through to save us. And we get to remember that and praise God that we have been saved. Palm Sunday, as we look towards the rest of the week, is an opportunity to remember that Savior.